0: Hi, this is Taylor Stuber. And this is Sean Smith Gall. We are both clinical pharmacists and faculty members at Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy, and we are your hosts for The Postgraduate Pharmacist. On The Postgraduate Pharmacist, we focus on preparing and obtaining postgraduate training positions.
1: From current events to expert advice, you'll have up to date content related to postgraduate training. New episodes are released every other Monday, so don't forget to like or subscribe. Follow us
0: on Twitter at PG Pharmacist or Instagram and LinkedIn at The Postgraduate Pharmacist. And don't forget
1: to separate and stand out.
0: We know everyone is dying in anticipation of match day results coming out in a few days. And you know it's real when you see all these blog posts and emails from the ASHP match, which is coming through ASHP. About the anticipation and what to do and, and how to handle that. So if you, if you want more information on kind of that, go ahead and read those blog posts. But, but we've also been there and feel the pain that you all are going through.
1: Yeah, I remember exactly how I felt in those few days leading up to the match. And I want to remind everyone, though, that it's going to be okay and to just breathe. Yes, and we have a lot to unpack on that very topic.
0: But first, we want to remind you all about our new features that we've released lately. So check us out on postgraduatepharmacist.com to see our episodes, show notes, and our blog, which will give you some more insider information on how to separate and stand out. We'll have a post coming out soon about how to crush pre-screener interviews. So if you want to know how to crush some pre-screener interviews, check out the blog, we also have our promotion going on right now with our highly, highly demanded t-shirt line. If you use promo code SASO, you can get free shipping on our t-shirts. I got mine in the mail the other day. They're pretty pretty sweet, very soft. My advice is get a size up because they're, they're kind of tight fitting. Not, <laughs> I don't have that ripped dad bod, so I, I, I it, it wasn't too flattering on me, but um, get a size up and it should fit perfect. Uh, You can also get free access to our behind-the-scenes content if you retweet our promotional tweet on that. And the last thing I'll say is we're introducing a new Q&A session on Twitter Spaces, and these will come out typically the week after our episode releases. And it'll be Taylor and I, and sometimes our guests will jump back in on these. And what we're doing there is answering any questions you have follow-up to our episodes. So if you have questions you want answered, Go ahead and you know send us those on Twitter or DM us on Twitter or any of our other accounts, and we'll add those to the mix. If you can't make the live session, which will be this one, will be Thursday, March 24th, 1130 to 12 central time. And so if you can't make it, these will be recorded and you can access them for the next 30 days. You can listen in, you can submit your questions in real time or submit them ahead of time, however you'd like.
1: All right. Well, first, I just want to wish everyone the best of luck on match day. You all have put in so much hard work and every one of you is worthy of matching into a residency program. Really wish there were more spots out there available for all of the qualified candidates out there that are more than deserving of these positions. but We know, based on our episode a couple weeks ago, that not everyone is going to match in phase one. And that is the unfortunate reality based on that discussion and the statistics we went over.
0: Yes, Taylor, it is very unfortunate, but we want to do whatever we can possible to help our listeners be successful if they don't match in phase one and plan to pursue phase two. Today, we have brought on a guest to discuss this topic, Dr. Corey Guidry, who is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center, College of Pharmacy. Corey, it is great to have you on the podcast today.
2: Well, so glad to be here. I appreciate y'all inviting me. And after hearing you a little bit earlier, I'm excited to order my shirt and have it in the mail. I'll take your <laughs> advice about that. Uh that, that bigger size, definitely.
1: Corey, we love it when our uh, listeners get to know our guests a little bit more. You're obviously a funny guy. so. But before we uh, dive into our topic, do you mind just sharing a little bit about your professional journey?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, I appreciate the use of funny as opposed to a different adjective. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But no, definitely. So, so yeah, I am actually originally from the great state of Louisiana. Undergrad at LSU, and did pharmacy school at University of Louisiana Monroe. Some call it North Louisiana. I call it South Arkansas. So from there, I did a PGY one residency at University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, and then I moved and did you know East East Tennessee State University for a PGY two in internal medicine and the great city of Johnson City. One of you may have. Other thoughts about that as well? We're familiar with that place. <laughs> yeah. So from there, you know, always had a passion for uh, internal medicine, also always had a passion for postgraduate training, thought it's very important, always supportive of helping those who are going on this journey.
0: Well, we're excited to have you. We're, we're always excited when I get somebody who alummed at the same residency place as I did, although it is internal medicine. I'll, I, I won't give you a hard time about that. But we're excited to have you on this show and be able to share your ideas about the topic. So let's go ahead and dive into that, Taylor.
1: Absolutely. So, Corey, on our last episode, we discussed the matching statistics uh, we know that this Wednesday, most likely about 35 to 40% of those who ranked programs are not going to match, unfortunately. What should all candidates do in anticipation of this?
2: Yeah, I think that's the golden question. You know, you hear these statistics thrown around and have to decide. No one never wants it to be them, but but what if it is, you know, so... I think just some great advice is just to really start thinking at this moment, what are your reasons for wanting to do a residency? You know, are you in it for the right reason? Do you feel like it's something that you're passionate about, that you're drawn to, that it's your calling? Or is it something that you feel like you just have to do, kind of get that, that next, you know, box checked off all those things? So I think that's really important because I think that might determine who's going to go forward if maybe that phase one result isn't in, doesn't swing the way that they want it to go, so to speak. Yeah,
0: I like the point about having that conversation now about is it the right thing for you before you jump in and start spending all this money submitting additional applications in phase 2.
1: So if they do decide they're in it for the right reasons, they've kind of reflected on that and and decided that, you know, this is something they do want to pursue should they start reaching out to preceptors or should they wait until they find out the news or, or what do you, what do you suggest?
2: Oh, I think it's always best. If you have not already reached out to a preceptor and you're on a rotation, you need to do that right away. You need to probably pause this podcast and go do that right now. <laughs> because I mean, in all honesty, whether you match or don't match that Wednesday you're. I feel like my brain was just in a completely different place. I, I wasn't able to really concentrate on much that morning and, you know, others may be different. So please let your preceptor know just so that they're aware, maybe if you're a little off your game that day, or, you know, maybe if you have a really great preceptor, they're going to say, Oh, you know, maybe take that morning off. Or, you know, if if you don't get the result you want, maybe we can work through that together that afternoon, if you need to start looking into programs and things of that nature. So I I definitely recommend everyone should let their preceptor know if they're on rotation right now.
0: Yeah. What do you think about it being on a Wednesday?
2: I think there's been a lot of hot debate about this. Um, (laughs) So I did appreciate the kind of pro-con discussion. When I actually first heard of it, I was like, oh, oh, darn. You know, the whole point of a Friday is then you have the whole weekend to prepare. But I do have to say, I I do look at it as a way to maybe have another couple of days to look over programs. So, you know, you you get, I, I believe it's 48 more hours now to kind of look through programs and kind of look at all that information before you even can start submitting applications. So I feel like it's actually beneficial in that way. But also just having it fall in the middle of the week, Wednesday, because then you have to go through Thursday and Friday unless you just have the best preceptor in the world. <laughs> <and tell> them, <laughs> you know, are you focusing on your patients? Or are you like, oh, so this program has this rotation and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I can definitely see pros and cons. But the more I think about it, I definitely think it's it's a way to kind of help students to be even more prepared and get as much information as they can before they submit those phase two applications.
0: That's smack dab where we landed when we did our episode last time, it was kind of like in episode brainstorming on and reflection on what, what it would mean to do it on a Wednesday, but that's kind of where we landed that we like the more time, but then we're not sure like about the Thursday, Friday focus while if you, especially if you have rotations. So
1: yeah, very, very interesting. I think I'm in the camp of I'm, I'm for it, I think I'm for it.
2: Yeah. I think as pharmacists, maybe sometimes we, we do, but sometimes we don't like change. So it felt like maybe it was just a change for no reason. But when you actually sit and think of the reasons, like, oh, okay, that, that actually does make sense. It makes sense. Yeah.
1: Sure. So for those candidates, you know, they've reached out to their preceptors. They've kind of discussed, hey, I'm going to pursue phase two, if it comes to that, what advice would you give them when they do get that unfortunate news as they're pursuing phase two?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of advice that can be given here. I think kind of the first thing to do is you'll probably have a lot of emotions going on at that point. So I think that's the time to kind of step back and just give yourself a chance to breathe. I think one of the main things that probably easier said than done, but just to remind people that when and how and how quickly in the matching process you match does not determine whether or not you are a good pharmacist, whether or not you'll be a successful pharmacist. I have worked with and known so many pharmacists who did not match in phase one, some who didn't match at all. So this is not the end all be all. So if you get that bad news, kind of like we said, you can sit back, take that breather, do whatever you need to process it. And then I think... You really need to start hitting the ground running if you do feel like going through with phase two is the best, the best next step for you.
1: Yeah, I think that's the number one most important step. Before diving in, just take the time to process it. I mean, it's going to be emotional. Obviously, you've put in a lot of work and we've recorded past episodes on this as well. So if you wanted to go check those out, some of our earlier episodes, I'd encourage you to do so. When they do kind of process, have that initial emotional reaction and process they didn't match, when they're moving forward, what should their plan be? Do you think they should be more flexible in terms of location, some of the program characteristics, rotations, etc.? cetera, that would be important to them?
2: One thing I've always said to students who I've either precepted or kind of worked with in like a mentorship role is I think it's easier to come up with a list of maybe must haves for a program like, oh, I want my program to have this rotation be in this city But I think what sometimes in these sorts of situations can be more beneficial is maybe coming up with a list of must not haves. So I think there's a lot of things where initially I was looking at programs. It's like, oh, I want them to have, you know, this rotation. I want uh, to be, you know, at a really large medical center. I want this specific type of preceptor. But when it came down to it, I had to ask myself, you know, what programs would I just genuinely be interested in applying to? Which programs would meet the needs maybe not all of my needs, but some of the most important needs. And for some people, those must not haves are going to be different. For some people, they cannot move out of a certain location. They are locked within a certain range of family or or things of that nature. So maybe they can't scour the whole country. For others, they have the ability to do that. For some people, maybe in phase one, you're thinking, oh, I need to have a teaching certificate but maybe for phase two, you realize, even though I don't have a formalized teaching program, maybe I do have opportunities to precept students and interact with learners of pharmacy or, or other medical specialties. So I think really kind of sitting back and looking at this list more so of which of these programs can I absolutely not go to rather than which of these has you know the perfect mix of everything I'm looking for.
0: Especially when you're only faced with about 100% programs. It's rare. You're going to find one that checks all your initial boxes or is, is similar to the ones you, you looked at phase one of the match. So I think that flexibility is key.
1: Yeah. And I like how you said looking for those ones that you like absolutely can't go to versus Mm -hmm. maybe the ideal scenario. Um, I think that's a good way, good way to look at it. And you know, you can certainly figure out other ways to check boxes like you were mentioning with the teaching certificate. So I like kind of that perspective with everything. Even though they have an additional 48 hours, you're still l- limited. Yeah. So when do you all think that they should start evaluating programs? Do you think they should you know start that Wednesday? Do you think they should wait a day or what do you, what do you think? Do you think it matters
2: other things are more important i mean it's released at noon <laughs> but give your you know go go get some drinks maybe some dinner no no i definitely think as soon as possible you know so that you find out those phase one results and then as most people i'm sure are already aware at noon eastern standard time that day a list of programs for phase two is released so the sooner that you can jump on that list the better i think this kind of harkens back to why it's so important to let your preceptors know because if your preceptor is aware that there's a possibility that you may have to go through phase two, I think it's going to be much more likely that it can be like, Hey, you know what? I have patient care for today. Maybe you can go and look through that list and, and have this afternoon to yourself. So sooner, the better have a time machine, maybe get that list and go back a couple of days. So you have even more time, but <laughs> science has only come so far.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, I used to have a, cause I went through the scramble And back then it was you email programs immediately because like there's no formal process to it. And I used to actually stick with that when the phase two came out. I still would tell students, it's not going to hurt you. Get an edge. Email the RPD, let them know you're interested in the program. I have in the last year changed my opinion on that. And I don't think now that this is more of an established process and now that it's got a real strict timeline to it and application submission openings and all this stuff I don't think it's beneficial anymore to email a program I think it'll just cause noise I don't know if it'll necessarily hurt your chances but it has that potential I don't think it will help you any anymore as opposed to it maybe it did when this first was changed so I wanted to get your both y'all's opinions do you agree or disagree with that emailing programs to try to get an edge when you see the list come
1: out at noon that's a good thing to think about i would probably say I'd, I'd probably lean more towards what your opinion is now unless you know you happen to know like have a connection or yeah knows no, no 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 if you
0: know or your mentor knows that person then you're yeah. like email them immediately
1: but yeah I, I mean there's such a set process like you can start submitting applications at a certain time they're gonna have a rolling application cycle at that Given time, they're gonna have a set time. They're gonna review applications, so they're they're probably gonna get thousands or hundreds of emails from people. So it's probably not something that they're really looking deep into or reading much into at that point, because they're probably getting hundreds of applications.
2: Yeah, I agree with both of you, and I think kind of to Taylor's point, I think if you do maybe have a personal connection, whether you or your mentor, I think that might be a reason definitely that. Maybe you can send that email. And I say if you're thinking about whether or not you should send an email, I think just make sure it's a good reason that you're sending it before you're submitting an application. So if there's something that's just maybe not clear on a website or if it's something that you really need to know to truly consider this program, then definitely I think that warrants reaching out. And maybe it's the program director. Maybe it's a current resident if it's easier for that person to answer it. Because I agree. I mean, how many emails are these poor program directors going to be getting? And if it's just an email to say, hey, I'm interested in your program, I think that might actually reflect worse on a candidate, as opposed to if you have a true reason. So I can Uh see both ways, but I would definitely think that kind of this initial period until the application process opens is really for everyone going through phase two to kind of do their own research. And yeah, I think maybe if you need a little bit of more clarification, that might be one reason why you could reach out, but not just in general, just to, you know, drop a line or something like that. Yeah.
0: And I think most programs put, uh, like the most RPDs will put an out of office on their email. (laughs) Just from when I did it, I remember getting so many replies saying they're out of office. And I was like, I don't think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love we're having a great discussion, but I don't know, Corey, if you're familiar enough with our podcast to know that when we have a guest on we like to ask them trivia questions, so this is our favorite part of the episode—the PGP trivia. Do we have a prize for, for Corey if he gets <laughs> them both right? We we can probably uh, probably give him some some of our merch. We'll give you some merch. We'll send you we'll send something to Oklahoma. It's not too far away. Fantastic. I will start. I like the nostalgia feel lately. So mine takes us back to the year 2000. George W. Bush was elected president. Brad Pitt was named The Sexiest Man Alive. The world did not crumble because of Y2K, and you could actually get a PlayStation, and it was only $299. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was also released this year to mass hysteria. So a lot of cool things happened in the year 2000. My question is, which artist or band had the most popular song in the year 2000? And you you have multiple choice. Your options are Everclear, Matchbox Twenty, Blink One Eighty Two, or Savage Garden. And my first question is: Have you heard of all these bands? Oh. I have,
2: I have. Okay, I am in the I am in the, uh, in the uh, I guess smack that middle slash end of the millennial generation, but I have heard of those definitely. Great. Um, I will say, as you were kind of going through the spiel and you were asking the question, I had in my head certain artists and none of them were choices you gave. So that's awesome.
0: Um, <laughs> See, I tried to handpick ones that everybody would know. Who were you thinking of before you answer it?
2: Well, it's so funny because you were talking about 2000 and then of course I heard millennium and I was thinking like an NSYNC or a Backstreet Boy uh, was going to be That was available. exactly
1: where my head was. I okay. I'm was glad I'm not two.
2: alone. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They were on there. They were actually pretty far down the list though. So that's I didn't surprising. pick them. That's
2: surprising. Yeah. Um, of those options, for no reason whatsoever, <laughs> I will go with Blink 182. Oh,
0: that's a good choice.
1: Yeah. So I think Blink 182 is a distractor here. Savage Garden had a, had some bangers. So Truly Madly Deeply was a really popular song. And I remember that just playing over and over again. I had this, I had the CD. It was orange. It had a little Walkman that I people don't even know what that is anymore but so i'm going <laughs> to go with i'm going to go with savage garden well that was
0: really close and that's probably what i would have picked taylor the answer is matchbox 20 because of their song mm. bent which isn't even oh, my favorite matchbox yeah. 20 song so this is funny. so that was like one of the t- the top one was um breathe by by faith hill was number 1 <laughs> breathe by faith oh, hill okay. but it's funny how these have transformed in popularity And it's kind of funny how from today to back then how long the longevity of songs were like some of these songs on this list were released in 1999 and just today if a song was released in 2021 it wouldn't even be close to the top hits of 2022 because it's just like within three weeks it's gone so it's just funny how songs lasted so much longer back then because it took so long to get them kind of disseminated Uh, but number one was actually breathe by faith hill and in comparison on Spotify to today, Bent only has 20 million listens, Breathe has eighty-four million, and Blink One Eighty Two has over six hundred million. Their song was all the small things. That's the song so, I was thinking of. Yeah. So yeah. so just because uh just because something was popular at the time doesn't
1: mean it's gonna be popular twenty years from now. I thought that was pretty cool. Good question. I like the nostalgia. <laughs> feel that feels like so long ago but yeah now right.
2: you're making me realize that uh <laughs> if a song doesn't appear as a backing track on a tiktok it won't be popular these days <laughs> <laughs> absolutely
1: so I, w- I wanted to ask a question about russell wilson being traded sean but and how don't, you felt it's about like a knife to my heart right i know now. i because j- we I, lost I just, wagner too <laughs> yeah we're total rebuild but anyways so my question is not about that i just wanted to let you know. My question is actually, so Corey, in your Twitter bio, you are a proud defender of the Oxford comma. I don't know if you remember that, but you are.
2: Oh, I remember that. Those words echo through these (laughs) hollowed halls of my office every day.
1: Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. I stand in your camp. Corey's my (laughs) new hero. And hopefully we convince after this trivia question why everyone should endorse the Oxford comma. So, my question is about a lawsuit hinging around a single omitted comma. Back in 2014, this lawsuit started. It was for several drivers for a milk and cream company claiming that they were not receiving overtime pay for which they were eligible. There was a certain law, a pertinent state law, that exempted overtime pay for those who were involved in the canning, processing, preserving freezing drying marketing storing packing for shipment or distribution of all these perishable foods agricultural produce things like that but they omitted the comma before the shipment (laughs) so it was interpreted as packing for shipment or packing for distribution of you can see how the comma omitted before the or can be misleading so anyways the drivers won the lawsuit, and so my question is about how much the lawsuit was, how much they were awarded. What so, was the year again? Twenty fourteen. Oh was gosh. it? It's multiple choice. So, was it 50, 000, 000, 5 million or fifty million? Can I get a hint? Can we? Can we know how many people were employed? It roughly, it's a, it was a hundred. Because we're
0: talking overtime pay, so I'm trying to calculate. It was it more. It was about
1: hundred and twenty.
2: Okay, I was about to say, is this like a a local dairy or is this like a a national? (laughs) Well, that was a roller coaster. I have to say, y'all's, your questions are, they read like poetry. I love them. I love the background (laughs) because it does nothing to help me whatsoever. (laughs) Also appreciate the personalized approach. When you said Twitter bio, I was like, he can either ask me about Oxford commas, peanut butter or Legos, I feel like is the most recent. (laughs) So, If you would have chosen the other two, it would have been over for you. Um, I'm just going to guess 5 million sounds like a nice round figure to me.
1: I'm going to go for the top two. I I like that answer. All right. You guys are correct. It was 5 million, $5 million over one little comma that they left off. So they were awarded that settlement and that was a very expensive comma omission, which is why you should endorse the Oxford comma.
0: Oh, that's funny. Nobody sues for less than a million these days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get real divisive up in here. How do y'all feel about two spaces after a period?
0: (laughs) Oh, that's what I always do. And then um, I always have to go back and edit all my documents. So I... I like have to force myself to stop
1: doing it. I'm a single space after a period. <laughs>
2: single spacer right here. This ain't no typewriter. Yeah, yeah.
1: The uh, the double space. I whenever somebody does that, I always control
2: find and replace the double space. So, Taylor, you and I have way too much in common. This is spooky. <laughs> do the same exact thing. I control find and replace every single, single one space. of them.
0: I swear it was beaten into my head when I was, when they put the board over my keyboard and I learned to type, it was like hit the spacebar
1: twice. (laughs) Yeah, I was taught that too, but I'm a, I'm a rebel. All right, let's dive back into, uh, to some more information about phase two. So, so obviously there's a lot of applicants going through phase two for a, a more limited number of programs. What advice would you give candidates on how to stand out during the phase two
2: process? Here, I think one of the most important things is probably having a good little, not saying it needs to be completely revamped, but a good review of your application materials. I definitely think reaching out to your mentors, of course, even some of, you know, other students, you know, who are going through the match process people who aren't even involved in pharmacy, I think having as many extra pairs of eyes on those materials can definitely help. Is there a typo you missed? Is there maybe some wording that could have been a little bit stronger? Is there something maybe that you didn't even think to include in a letter of intent that your mentor can kind of be like, hey, this will really help you stand out. So I think kind of looking through those materials and having as many people lay eyes on those as possible, that's a really good start to make sure that the next time you're submitting that application, it's the strongest one yet. Yeah, and you can do that right now.
1: Right. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. I think uh, asking your current rotation preceptor if they would review it, even if even if you've had it reviewed by somebody before, it do, it's not going to hurt to have them review it again. The more eyes yeah. that have seen it, the better. I, th- I think one of the things that comes up is, you know, that I get asked is when should they start submitting applications when that window opens, and does that is that going to affect your chances at all?
2: I think. And I am by no means a program director, um, but I've heard both ways. I've heard that sometimes in phase two, it's kind of a first come first serve. So as soon as those applications start coming in, I feel like some programs will start reviewing those and start kind of potentially deciding who they want to offer interviews to. Some programs may do that differently. So I think the sooner you can get to when when those application windows open, the better. But I'd be interested to hear what Sean thinks, especially since he may have some experience in this.
0: I was going to say, I have absolutely no experience in <laughs> this,
2: but I was going to speak from the perspective of what I
0: think I will do, having this be the first time that I would be the program director when this is happening. And if we have to go to phase two for any reason, in just my curiosity, because we're a newer program and I and that's why I'm speaking for is newer programs. I see the RPD being having it pulled up and checking it like every 30 minutes that day and just seeing what comes through and then seeing the type of applicants that they're getting. And in so that aspect you kind of want to be the first one essentially to pop in their inbox. And so they can look at your application and see like, oh, and and they might look at that one in a little more detail. But by the time the 50th or the 100th one rolls through, you know, they're going to be looking at it as well. And a new program might even just decide, like, if I was to get 50 applicants, which I wouldn't because it's a PGY2, so I, I would get a smaller number than a PGY1. But if I was to get 100 applicants and I had one position and I already determined, man, there's a lot of good applicants in this first 100, I would probably just cut it off there and just start looking at those hundred because let's just face it. If let's say I don't end up finding one in that hundred, which would be extremely rare. I know the rest of the 300 I didn't look at are probably still going to be there in the scramble. If for some weird reason I don't match. So it's not like you're missing out on it, which in that terms, the program has a lot of power and I'm not a fan of the program having that kind of power, but it's there. So yeah, I would, I agree with Corey. I think, you want to be the
1: very first one to get that in. What do you, what do you think, Taylor? My thought is get, get them in earlier, if that is at all possible. You know, program directors or people that are reviewing materials, they might wait till a set time, maybe on the second day or maybe the afternoon of the first day to at least start screening applications because it's such a short time frame. If you submit it at the, that Friday, I think they're probably going to have already the interviewees selected. So do the most that you can to get it in on that Monday. I would would be my suggestion. If candidates do get interviews, what can they do to stand out during these interviews? Given that you know a lot of times they're going to be a little bit more shortened or or they might not ha- have as much face time with with some of the people that they're interviewing with.
2: I think for this one, I think one of the things that can really help kind of give you a stronger stronger presence during your interviews. Once again, I think just goes back to making sure that you have the time available to devote to these. You know, I think there's a big difference. You know, once again, we keep harping back on letting preceptors know, but trying to fit in a quick interview in between patient care rounds versus having a a devoted couple of hours, one afternoon or one morning to maybe get an interview or two in. So I think that's one thing that can really help making sure that you can try and devote as much time as possible. I know that's not you know, always going to be feasible for everyone. And I think also, once again, like really just kind of getting those those jitters out at the beginning, just kind of like sitting there and doing what you need to do when you find out the results, but then really kind of putting your, your best foot forward, kind of getting your head in the game and realizing that, you know, you're going to be competing with a large group of people over a shorter time period. So you really need to do what you can in terms of preparation, in terms of Asking specific interview questions, and more importantly, I I don't want it to get lost. Also, the fact that this is still a chance for the candidate to really be reviewing these programs too. So it's not like just because you're in phase two, you have to kind of accept, you know, what you're given or things of that nature. If you think a program is great for you and you go to that interview and it just doesn't really fit, I think just as with phase one, this is still your chance to make sure that you're ending up at a program that's still going to be beneficial for you. So I I think those are a few things. I don't know if you all have any other thoughts.
0: I couldn't agree more, Corey, because we did last year interview, not last year, two years ago, we interviewed phase two candidates, but we were interviewing for for our fellowship because so we weren't bound by ASHP's matching rules. So I can say in that aspect, I was looking like one of the most important things to me was exactly what you just said. And is the candidate's ability to ask good questions, showing their one knowledge of like what they're looking for, what they need to know more about. Cause I knew they knew nothing about my program because there wasn't really anything out there. We didn't have a big website. We didn't have a ton of bios on past fellows. It wasn't like we had all the technology and things that PGY1 programs sometimes have. So they should have been asking really good questions or just just a lot of, they should have had more questions than we had time to answer essentially. And I'd have candidates on there that would ask like one or two generic questions and they're like, oh, I think you've answered all my questions. And and I'd be sitting there thinking, well, that's impossible because you have got to have more questions than that. So I love that you said that, that you can still ask questions. I'll contradict that though a little bit with if it depends on, in my opinion, if it's a pre-screener interview versus an actual interview. So if they cause they may do a lot of pre-screeners in this. And if there's a pre-screener interview, I'd actually advise, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this with just a pre-screener, Corey, but I'd advise against asking or trying to pick apart the program because at that stage, you're just trying to get to the next step. You're just trying to answer questions and you're not trying to weed out the program at that point. So you just want to seem like, You know, if they ask you what questions you have, you can ask them, but if it's just a pre-screen and they just want to get to know you real quick, you just, you know, you shine and show off as much as you can.
2: Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. And it brings up a good point and something I just thought of is one good thing you have on your side with phase two is, you know, if you had interviews through phase one and maybe just, you know, didn't match with those programs, you've already answered probably most of the questions you'll be getting. So you're kind of familiar with the types of questions you'll be mm-hmm. asked. You're probably been able to go back and review, you know, you know, tell me about a time when you did X, Y, Z, you know, tell me about yourself. And I think this is also a great way to utilize whether they be through, you know, professional organizations or even, you know, your local colleges, career services, you know, practicing interviews as well. So I know this is a short time frame, but hopefully even if it's just informal with, you know, a mentor or something of that nature, just rehearsing, maybe you thought you were given a a knockout answer to a question. And once you actually sit down and say it to someone who isn't in the interview process, maybe they don't feel the same way. So I think that's definitely a thing too. you know, for those pre-screeners, it's definitely more about how you answer their questions. So focusing on your ability to do that and kind of improving those skills as well.
1: Yeah, that was going to be one thing that I said was about practicing with somebody, either a preceptor mentor somebody with career services at your college or school. One other thing I would just say to add on to everything that you all have said is just to make sure that you're still being authentic during phase two. I know it can probably be a little overwhelming and you've, you've got a lot going on and it's an emotional process and you might want to appear one way for for programs. But I, I would just say just you know continue to embrace yourself and your authenticity. I think that that really stands out and can help you be more desirable for programs when they when they feel they're getting somebody who is not just a, a robot and and they feel like they're being their true authentic self so that would be my last piece of advice
0: yeah and i just want to add one more the uh <laughs> treat it like this is just part of your master plan and this is just another just another step in your path to doing what you dream of doing one day so be enthusiastic about it try not to act like you're just crushed by the fact that you're in phase two. Try to come across as optimistic and enthusiastic, and just like I'm. Ex- this is another step. I'm here. I'm excited. I'm just glad to be given this opportunity, and uh, and that goes a long way in just facial expressions and your demeanor, and and makes you seem like a real positive person who has a lot of grit and can handle letdowns. So uh, I wanted to just ask a couple questions about because uh, they just released this the career fair that ashp is putting on so i wanted to did you see that announcement
2: yeah i think i saw that come through my email um buried under other emails but i definitely (laughs) saw it do do you know have you do you know anything about that not as familiar with the career fair i've heard others talk about it before now you have i think we're all pulling up our our emails respectively definitely (laughs) um because yeah i feel like it, it it's very similar maybe to I don't know, kind of like a PPS, but more so for the applicant rather than you know the person looking. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah,
0: that's what I kind of gauged. It's um, there's not a lot of information. You don't have to read it. It just says that it's going time to be determined, free for candidates, and there was pricing for pr- uh, programs who are, who are releasing it. But I want to just get your opinion. What do you think about that? Because I think this is the second year, and we can we can check on that later. But I think this isn't the first time they've done the career fair. And uh, I didn't know what your thoughts are on the career fair. Do you think it's worth it for students to, without knowing anything else, just pure, just off the cuff opinion? Do you think it's worth it for students to attend it, and uh, and maybe what they should be thinking about now in preparation of like this career fair, knowing that you mentioned it's kind of it might be like PPS.
2: Yeah, definitely. No, I don't think it's kind of a bad idea at all. At least to register, Um, because I mean it, it doesn't seem to be happening until later in April. So, you know, maybe by that time you'll have already secured a residency position, you know, so maybe it won't be necessary. But especially for those who maybe, you know, have to go beyond phase two, maybe scramble and things of that nature, there's other opportunities out there. And I definitely think this is the sort of place where, of course, you know, on this podcast, we talk about postgraduate opportunities, but, you know, definitely probably some industry opportunities and and things of that nature that maybe candidates wouldn't have even thought about. So I, I can definitely see the utility in it.
1: Well, Corey, thank you so much. Any closing thoughts or last minute advice you have for candidates before match day for phase two?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of great things were said today. I think maybe the main point I really want to emphasize is just really leaning on your friends, your mentors, your preceptors, you know, using those people to your advantage either to just kind of vent a little bit when it's all said and done and you realize you may have to go through that second phase but also just as a sounding board and reviewing your application materials i think going through this process alone kind of probably just adds to the stress of the situation so having people in your corner can definitely be beneficial for you
0: well Corey, thank you so much for being a guest on the postgraduate pharmacist it was a pleasure having you today i appreciate your sense of humor so we'll have to have you back sometime
2: Yeah, glad to be here. Happy to join anytime you all are willing to have me again.
1: If you want to continue to hear up-to-date topics from us and our guests, please like and subscribe. You can listen to us for free on your favorite podcast app and check out our show
0: notes below to see links and highlights of the episode. And remember, you can separate and stand out.